welcome to Inspiration Loves Company, a podcast about doing better and being better at life, work, and everything in between. I'm your host, Debbie Epstein-Henry, a lawyer turned entrepreneur, public speaker, and author. I'm so glad you're here. Our guest today is Lighty Klotz. Lighty is the author of Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less, and a professor at the University of Virginia. Since his publication, Subtract has been among the most influential popular science books featured by The Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, and national newspapers on five continents. Lighty has authored more than 80 original research articles and secured more than $10 million in competitive funding to support his and others' work studying the science of design. Before becoming a professor, Lighty designed schools in New Jersey, and before that, he played professional soccer. So welcome, Lighty. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. How are you? I'm terrific. It's a it's a privilege to be here, Debbie, and uh, looking forward to talking to you. I appreciate you reaching out. I actually looked back, and it was originally October of 22 that you reached out, and I was thinking, <laughs> I really need some subtraction in my life. Like, why didn't I respond to him earlier? <laughs> I personally am in very much in need of this conversation, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's a timeless idea. Exactly. Exactly. So I remember reading that you had this moment when you were playing with your son, when the idea of subtract came up and it subsequently became the impetus for writing your book called subtract the untapped science of less. Can you talk about that story and what you mean by subtract and how that concept of your book developed from there? Yeah, well, my son will be happy to be mentioned. He's eight now, and they talk about who's more famous in their third grade class. And so I'll be able to tell him that. But he was, um, I think he was three or four at the time of the story. And so we were playing Legos, and I bring a replica everywhere. I think I can put them. Yeah. So it's basically like a bridge like this um, that we were trying to make. And the problem we had was that it wasn't level. And so I went to solve the level bridge problem by adding another Lego block to the shorter column. But before I could do that, um, Ezra, my son, had removed a block from the longer column. And, you know, we did a lot of research since then to understand, like, what's going on psychologically, why why that happens. Um, and it ends up being really close to what happened to me in that moment, which is that I just um, was encountered a situation that I wanted to make better, right? So in this case, it was a Lego bridge, but of course this translates to all kinds of situations that we want to make better. And my first thought was like, hey, what can I add to this thing? And if I didn't have a four-year-old there with me, I would have just added and moved on and never considered this whole other class of options. So that was the impetus for for doing the research, um, which, you know, kind of confirmed what I just said. And then, you know, writing the book because I had a four-year-old and we had another kid on the way. It wasn't like I was looking to write a book at that time, but it's like, <laughs> this is a really important idea that needs to be um, shared as authentically as possible. I love those moments when you have that clarity. Yeah. And I do think it's so great with kids in particular, because they're so uninhibited in terms of how they respond to things and what they say. And to be mm -hmm. able to crystallize that moment is so great. And I want to make sure before we get more into the concept of subtract and what you're doing and what you've talked about and researched in your book is specifically what do you mean by subtract? Yeah, so when we're trying to make something better and that's really important framing, right? Because I think we do think about subtracting when it's like, okay, how do we streamline or cut costs or make things uh, worse? When we're trying to make something better, can we take away something from that situation to achieve that goal? Um, that's 
that's what I mean by subtracting. So in the in the Lego example, it was the block, but in our in the reason you didn't respond to my email for six months, it could be like other emails that we need to subtract, right? So it's like kind of physical things, ideas, and social obligations are basically the categories that we think of as things that you could subtract. And it's in our personal lives and in our professional lives too. So you have a really interesting background, having played professional soccer and then designing buildings for a living. You're also an author and professor of both engineering and architecture, which is an interesting mix. And then you call yourself an academic trespasser. So I'm curious, can you briefly tell us how your career prepared you for this work of subtraction and created the foundation that gave you this focus? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, how long do you have? I'll try to crystallize <laughs> it down. I think um, the the soccer and engineering piece, right? The, that part of my background is like, I'm always trying to figure out ways to do better, right? So soccer, you're trying to like optimize your performance when it's building a building, you're trying to make a better building. And then when it's becoming a professor, you're trying to create and share knowledge. And so I'm just really interested in that process, right? If you take a step back from what you're actually doing to the process of trying to make things better. And that's where, you know, you kind of see these examples throughout life of, oh, uh, you know, you can take a day off from training and you'll actually play better in the game. Why is that counterintuitive? And then you see some building examples, like the some of the most inspiring structures, right? Or the ones where they're very elegant and, and stripped down. And why is that not more common? Um, so you kind of just like see those examples uh, of subtraction in those different contexts, making things better. And that's one way that it inspired me. And I guess the other way is just, um, you know, kind of in terms of the academic disciplines, it's kind of common sense to people who aren't in academia, but the the problems aren't confined to a discipline, right? So if you're interested in actually making things better, you have to look at engineering and architecture and, you know, this, what we're going to talk about is behavioral science in, in academia, right? And um, I think I've, because I'm focused on the, you know, making things better, I don't stop at the borders of the disciplines. It's like, okay, behavioral science is interesting. And then that brought to the the moment with Ezra, right? It's like, what's the psychology behind why we don't subtract? And that's a really interesting question. It really is. And I like the framing around making things better, but our bias and our tendencies is better is more. So it's adding more features to existing products or consuming more or mm -hmm. packing more into our already busy lives. So the question is, why and how do we change that mindset? How do we do that to think that affecting positive change can be through subtraction? Yeah, I think um, there, it's helpful to think about this in kind of two steps. One, you have to think about the subtraction, right? So that would be Ezra helping me with the bridge. And then the other thing you have to do is actually follow through with it, right? You have to think that it's good and um, feel comfort comfortable um, actually doing it. And so I think you know, there's two basic things that help. One is reminders. And that sounds really obvious. It's like, of course, reminders help with everything. But in our studies, we used reminders. Um, we'd give people different Lego structures, for example, and give them reminders that they could add or subtract. And they would subtract more, which makes sense. But they wouldn't add anymore, right? So for our studies, this is showing that um, 
that the adding reminder is redundant with what people are already thinking, the subtracting reminder is actually helpful. And that's why you've got all this advice out there and all the different realms of life, right? It's like, okay, you can work less and be more productive. And I think as we think about our own lives, we can think about how, how do we build in reminders so that we're making an important, when we're making an important decision, we think of this whole class of options that might be useful. Um, and then the other one is just to, to think about how we can build this into our process, right? Because it's hard to think of in the moment. And if we rely on our brains to do that, it might be difficult. A really simple example, just um, when I do my to-do lists, I also challenge myself to have some stop doings, right? So it's forcing me to think of subtraction. It's also helping a little bit with this challenge that subtraction has of when you take something away, sometimes people don't see it. And that's one reason we don't choose it, right? Because nobody sees that you're being competent. But if you build it into the process, then it's something you're supposed to be doing and you're showing competence by taking away. I think another aspect of this is stigma. So I started my public speaking career focused mm. on work-life issues more than 20 years ago. And there was so much stigma around that we were lazy or taking some shortcut or weren't as good at our job. This whole push, let's say, for a shorter work week or more sleep, there is that emphasis. But again, the tension there is that it seems like some sort of cop-out, like the work is not going to be as excellent or you're judged because you are some sort of slacker. So how do you reconcile that? Yeah, that stigma is a really interesting framing of it because I think I, you know, I use competence, but it's, I think you're right about the stigma and it's, um, and you can see that when you think about examples of subtractors, right? It's like Steve Jobs, everybody, nobody says that Steve Jobs is incompetent or not doing a good job because there's not a lot of features on the iPhone, right? It's like, really clear that he was trying to subtract. So if you can subtract more, then people can see that it's intentional and that you're actually doing it to try to make things better. When you give the example of Steve Jobs, it really resonates with me. I remember reading his biography and it just hadn't occurred to me until I was reading it when they talk about there was no need for an instruction manual. I mean, when were you ever given a piece of technology where it didn't come with a book that you have to look at? Right. And it was so intuitive. And so maybe part of this is subtraction gets the extra recognition when it's coupled with innovation, because then the subtraction success and the excellence is so readily apparent, like in the case with the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, I didn't even think about getting rid of the the, um, the instruction manual, but yeah. yeah. That, and that, that was so obvious, right? The first time that happened, you're like, where's the instruction manual? Oh, right. I don't need it. This is awesome. I never used it on the other things anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's just so, I mean, yeah, that's a beautiful example. And you give so many beautiful examples in the book in all different industries and in designers and scientists, musicians, comedians, et cetera. Can you share a favorite example of how one of these individuals subtracted and walk us through how it's done. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to share two and you can edit one out sure. if you want. You can subtract <laughs> one, but um, but one is my- I would uh, have to, it would be compliant of me, right? I'd have to. Yeah, one is my friend, Sophie. And so we were talking about these to do's and stop doings and this problem of you know a stigma around taking away. Um, and so she will say no to things, which is great and something that we all learn about. But then when she says no to it, she puts it on her calendar. It's like, okay, this two hour block of time that I can now spend on whatever I want is brought to you by past life Sophie, who was smart enough to not say yes to this obligation. And so it's like, there's her competence 
right there in front of her. And it also serves as a reminder for future tasks, right? It's like, oh, I've got this free time because I said no to something and now I'm more likely to do it going forward. So I think that's like a really cool, uh, like personal hack. Um, one of my favorite grander examples, there's this amazing uh, woman, Anna Kaikline, and she is a uh, she was like the first female architect in Pennsylvania. It's still hard for a woman to go through architecture school. And, you know, she was like the first one in Pennsylvania. She was um, just this really remarkable person. She was one of the first women who could drive. She would march for suffrage. She, uh, when she was, um, she volunteered for World War One, and she wrote a letter that they kept and it was like, you know, here are my qualifications. Um, I think you'll probably put me at some desk job, but if if there's something more dangerous I could do, please let me know. Um, Fantastic. Just like really amazing. And so she's a prolific architect, but also like did a lot of inventing and her, the invention that kind of shapes our lives the most today is um, she designed this thing called the, the K brick. And basically what it was, was a building block that didn't have the middle, right? So before Kaikline, all building blocks were solid, right? And she realized that you could remove the middle from this block. It would still perform the same structurally and it would, um, and actually performs better in some ways thermally. But sh the reason she thought of it is because she was really paying attention to the construction workers actually. And it's like, okay, this will be lighter. This will be easier to manipulate on the site. And it like totally, revolutionized building blocks and now if you see a construction project you'll see like the they look like a an eight most of them like a squared off eight those are the hollow blocks and that's you know kike lines block is the first in that lineage um so it's like this invention that changed the world right and it was came from from taking away and again an innovation and so coupling the subtraction with the something better, something yeah, better, something that's better new performance. Yeah. Is such a clear example. The first example you gave something that it made me think about is the power of actually showing the success of subtraction. So that block in the calendar of the two hours earned is such a powerful thing. It reminds me of many years ago, a friend who was quitting smoking and she had this glass jar where every day she put the cost of a pack of cigarettes wow. in that yeah. jar. And she would periodically buy herself lavish gifts. The cigarettes are actually fairly expensive. Yeah. We're doing it daily. And it was symbolic. She purposely did it of different massages and gym memberships and things like that, that were really health related. And so making the connection there so that in your friend's example with the subtraction, that's time earned. And so she's blocking it and using it hopefully in a really joyous way. It's such a tangible connection. And I think- the power of subtraction then comes through even more. Yeah. And I, when people will ask me like, why don't we subtract? And I, I say, well, haven't I just told you, but they want like a grand theory of why this is happening, why our brains get wired this way. And I think it just gets to that, right? If you subtract something so often, it is out of sight and out of mind. And so the cigarettes, for example, it's like, okay, they're out of your life. There's no kind of evidence that things are better because of the subtraction. But yeah, that that's even better than Sophie's calendar example, because it's like a physical thing on a table that you're putting money in, interacting with, and just this constant reminder that then, you know, reinforces in your mind. So I love that one. 
Another example I was thinking about in reading your work is in the public speaking context. I've been mm. doing public speaking for almost 25 years. And I recently had a piece in Fast Company called mm -hmm. 10 Smart Tips to Help Beat Your Fear of Public Speaking. And one of the 10 tips I call be thematic. And what I mean there is to be streamlined in your remarks. But one of the strategies I talk about is to ideally prepare your remarks in advance and set them aside and then come back to them and cut the content you don't need. And even later in the article, I then admonish that be brief, a good speaker leaves the audience wanting more. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this and if you have any other subtraction advice in the context of communication. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. The uh, There's the classic Mark Twain quote, but I think it even goes back farther than Mark Twain. That I would have written a, a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time, right? right. I think it's the same with public speaking. It's taking, right. it takes you, the key there is it takes you more effort to create a good short uh, public speaking engagement. So there's that that kind of applies to all information. I remember when I first, the book first came out and I went on, I was talking to Steve Levitt, the Freakonomics author, and he brought up a public speaking example from his life. And he said that when he first started public speaking, um, the the public speaking coach was like, look, you're not going to be great public speaker in terms of just like inspirational. Um, but here are some things that can help you. And they're like, one was like, lose the tie. Two was like, get out from behind the podium. And three was to not have notes. And all, all of those were like breaking down the barrier with the audience and all of them were subtractions. And so that was great when he told me that, because I don't like wearing ties. And I'm like, okay, now there's a, a justifiable <laughs> reason for doing it. Um, and I think the last one maybe to touch on is just um, what you mentioned about the the audience, right? And leaving them wanting more. It's even more than that, I think, because it's, when you're speaking, it's a conversation, right? As, as much as it's one person talking to 200 or 2000 or whatever it is, it's still a conversation. That's the reason they brought you there. And if, if you have everything figured out and if there's no space there, there's no way to kind of engage in a dialogue with the audience. And that could be through questions, but it could also just be through like watching what's happening, right? Hey, look, that, that example didn't land, but that one did. I need to, you know, give more along those lines. So I think that really kind of leaving half the space for the audience, right? And that's that's a that requires you to subtract from your your content and from like what you have planned going in. It's funny, another one of the tips in the article is about getting feedback. And I didn't really think at the time about those two tips relating that actually when you're cutting remarks short, then you're giving more room. Of course it is, but not until you said that did I think about the interplay of the two. Mm -hmm. I also wonder if some of us are more predisposed to successfully subtract. I think about when I was in law school and I knew I was ready for an exam when I was able to reduce an entire semester to one page. And mm -hmm. I wonder, not only are some of us more predisposed to subtract, but also is the subtraction process necessary or is it better to have that abbreviated way to approach things at the outset yeah that's a i love that example um I, I mean i think you're you're predisposed to work hard in that case right because it's like the key word there is you reduced it down to two yeah. pages or right it wasn't like the the slacker who only has time to make two pages of notes it was hey i'm really understanding this material and now i'm boiling it down to the two pages and what that really illustrates nicely is that this is this is a process, right? We add, 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 add. And then once you've got 
the accumulated stuff, then there are the opportunities to take away. And I bet some people are more predisposed to think about taking away at that point. I'm sure practice helps. But the the bigger lesson there, I think, is just that it's like, keep going, right? It's like, you've made this thing. It's probably good enough. You can go into the test with the 20 stuff, not having 20 pages of content, not having distilled things down. But it's not as good as really understanding what those two pages are. And that's the speaking thing too, right? I mean, you've got all this knowledge in your brain and it's like you want to show up and somehow help this really smart, really precious audience understand it. And it's really, yeah, you've got, you're have you the one who has to do the work to say, okay, how do I distill this down? How do I get them to where I am as quickly as possible? And it's, it's work. And actually in the discussion about the audience, to me, that's the most important part about public speaking, because as you just said, you have all this knowledge, you want to convey it, but you only want to convey what they need. You only right. want to address their problem. Right. You only want to be able to speak to them and know that they feel like you are not giving some canned speech, but in fact, you've done your homework, you know who they are, and you know how you can ideally help them. And that's mm -hmm. that framing is really important. So I think that seems like a big piece of this subtraction too, is to come into whatever you're about to undertake and have the understanding of what is the value of this at the end? What does success look like? And be able to frame your process accordingly. Is that right? That's so, yeah, you're, um, you're good at this. But the, <laughs> I think- um, I've been because, studying your work. It's about yeah. your work, by the way. Well, people will ask me like, okay, what should, what should I subtract this? Or should I subtract that? And I say, I don't know. I don't know what your specific subtractions are, but the way to get clarity on it is to have, know what the destination is, right? Know what the outcomes are. And so often we're not thinking about like what the big picture goals are. But But once you have those, you know, okay, yeah, it makes sense. We can subtract this point because it's not getting me to, yeah, it's it's valid. It's a true fact, but it's not what the audience needs to hear in this moment in time. Um, so that's having that vision is what gives you clarity on what can be subtracted to make the situation better. And we've talked a bunch on the individual level and you've given some great examples from the book, but I know that your goal is to have your work have implications much bigger than this than one-on-one. -on -one. And I wonder how do you impact organizations on this level? What are the ways to execute in that way? Yeah. Um, I mean, I do have big hope for just the mindset shift, right? Like if a lot of people can have a mindset shift and, and this, you know, kind of trickles into society, that's a big deal. Um, I think the organizations, the, these rules are really interesting. You've probably heard of this with your law background, but the um, I learned actually after writing the book, I learned about the kind of one in two out rule. So mm -hmm. all these things that get unbalanced, and in this case, it's uh, legislation or just like rules in an organization you could imagine, right? And it's the you know, it's the classic problem. It's like, yeah, it made sense when the organization first started to have some like standard operating procedures, but then you just get more and more and more and nobody's ever thinking about what can be taken away. So the trick is when somebody comes with some new thing that they want to do or some new rule that they want to have, say, great, let's talk about that. But also, could you suggest two rules that are on the books that we should also talk about removing, right? And it's just very simple that keeps the system in balance. It also helps with the stigma, right? Because it's hard to come and say, hey, this stuff that somebody else thought of, I think is useless now. But if you're being told, 
hey, to, to propose something new, you have to suggest two other things, then you're you're doing your job, right? Um, so I think that that's, that kind of thing is really helpful in organizations, like building it into the process, um, making it more than just something that you, you know, have a speaker come talk about once. It's like, no, this this matters and this is how we're going to do it. It reminds me actually of some conversations I've had with Kim Scott, the New York Times bestselling author mm. of Radical mm -hmm. Candor on feedback. And again, I think this comes back to framing. I was recently talking to a restaurant owner who said she was convening her team about feedback on the menu. And she was frustrated because she was like, what, what do you guys think are the best things? Should we take anything off the menu? And she was just getting really unvaluable advice. And I said, well, why don't you say to the team instead in a subsequent meeting, I've decided there are two items I'm taking off the menu. I'm curious if your inclination is to take the same two items off. If we had to take two items off the menu, what would they be? Mm -hmm. And sure enough, practically the entire team came up with the two worst things on the menu that everybody knew, but nobody was comfortable telling the boss. And it's the same thing in an organization. It's got to be partly not just seeping into these conversations, but I imagine some level of training mm -hmm. to institutionalize these changes and then create almost like a mandate around the change as opposed to, hey, should we change any rules here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the restaurant example is so great, right? Because that's the boss, right? Suggesting right. this. So not only are they giving like giving free reign to people to suggest subtractions, but they're also like leading by example saying, oh, the boss is subtracting to make things better. How can I do that in my job? Also like um, playing on the restaurant example, I've seen organizations that'll just kind of like completely flip things around and say, okay, we don't have a menu. Like, let's start adding stuff back. What are the first things we would add back, right? And I've seen organizations, um, there's a cool case study of Asana that did this with meetings. They had a meeting doomsday, got them all off the calendar, and then just said, okay, which ones are we adding back? And it changes the the calculus from like, okay, is this something that we should subtract, which is kind of hard to do, to is this something that we should add back in, which is, you know, a different question. I like that example. And there's probably a spectrum of people who are going to be more receptive to more mm. extreme degrees of this. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things that may be challenging is how effective you can be in influencing other people to subtract. So another person I've interviewed a bunch is Gretchen Rubin, the mm -hmm. happiness expert. And she talks about how the research shows that you can't make other people happy. You can elevate your own happiness in various ways and ideally model behavior that you hope that others will emulate, but you can't make them happy. And so I wonder, is it the same for subtraction? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that the the cognitive part of subtraction, certainly you can give people reminders that this is an option. So I think you could probably move it a little more than you could move somebody else's happiness. But I think the happiness is such a key point, right? Because if you can show that subtracting brings happiness, I think that's one of the key behaviors that is counterintuitive, right? I mean, there's Marie Kondo, who's one of the famous subtractors. She's the tidying guru, right? And what it, what's her core message is like, what sparks joy? And so what she's doing is connecting happiness to getting rid of things, which is not something that's often done. So if you can, you know, get those two things off the menu and show that it's joyful, or if you can put the subtracted meeting on your calendar and show that it's joyful, I think that's a, kind of a, a nice link between happiness and and taking things away. I agree. And 
then you can build all these other associations with it. So it's not just, let's say in Marie Kondo's case, bring your joy to yourself because you don't have clutter in your house, but also the opportunity to donate clothes to other people who are more in need and all these derivative benefits that are helpful to other people, but also can make you feel that you are contributing and making an impact. So I think that linkage, like you talked about, is really effective. I wonder also if a CEO or leader imposes subtraction as a method of leading, then there will be disciples who will see the benefit of that. So I see organizations as a really effective way to institute a new mindset. And I'm wondering if there are any interesting examples you can share along those lines. I was talking to SAP and they have a tool free time that they will institute. And so like, okay, we're just going analog for this week or this day. And again, it's coming from the the top, right? And it's showing the employees that this is something that, you know, has benefits, right? Taking away these these different ways of working and trying to to do it a different way. I don't we may not want to do it all the time, but it's worth trying this different mode of working and seeing if we come up with different ideas. So, I think yeah, it's anyone who's in a position of power or influence over other people, certainly if you can subtract, that's going to be a great way to number one, give people reminders that it's an option. And number two, kind of reduce this stigma around it. I really think this is going to continue to come up. And the example you just provided is making me think about this, that in 2025, I read that 75% of the workforce will be millennials and they are looking to work differently. And they have been pushing that as an agenda since they entered the workforce. My youngest of three sons is an engineer and he's in his first tech job out of college. And I see the way his workplace and his peers' workplaces are so loose in terms of the parameters of how these software engineers work. And Mm -hmm. it's so striking having my background, having worked in several law firms. And that's an opportunity too. And I guess I wonder, will those future leaders be articulating that subtraction that they're doing, or will it become more of a model of working that's no longer alternative, but the new mainstream? Yeah, it's really, that's really interesting. I've been thinking about one of the reasons that I you know, not the only reason or not even the main reason, but one reason I became a professor was to have this like flexibility in my work life. And I used to, when I was talking to PhD students, I was like, well, if you go into academia, you have a little more control over when you think what, and now I can't give that advice, right? Because I think the, a a lot of these other um, jobs have, have moved to the same model. I think it goes back to a little bit to what you're talking about. Like, what's the goal here, right? The goal is to get good software, good outputs and it doesn't matter if somebody's sitting in a seat in fact if they're taking two hours out of their day to drive there that's actually probably not a great um, use of their time Uh, and it's interesting that it took us so long to question that the other thing that's interesting there is that um, it, it might not matter if if we think of it as a subtraction or not, right? So we've talked a lot about subtracting. There's a reason subtract wasn't taken as a name for a book, even though it's this really big idea. It's like, this is not something that people 
people have a negative reaction to it when they first hear it, right? It's not as bad as moist, but it's, um, you know, it's not great. And, uh, you know, so hopefully we can shift that a little and get people happy about subtracting. But when you can't do that, just like you shift the framing, right? You're, you're streamlining, you're cleaning, you're carving, use some synonym that right. is- um, You're agile and flexible. Agile, and, yeah. agile's yes. a great one. Agile's yeah. very good. So Lighty, what have I missed or gotten wrong? Or what do you want to highlight that we didn't have a chance to cover as we wrap up our conversation to ideally inspire our listeners to get more on the path to subtraction? I think you got everything. So I'll use this time to kick it over to the listeners and just spend a little bit of time if you want to um, thinking about ways to build subtracting into your own process. I think as you're listening to this and when it's fresh on your mind, I think that's a really powerful use of your time and it shouldn't take long. So how fitting of you in an opportunity to say one more thing that you give that time back. It's the perfect modeling of subtraction and I love it. And it's such a pleasure to learn more about your work firsthand today. Congratulations on the contributions you're making. And I want to encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of your book, Subtract, and visit your website at lightyclots.com and follow you on social. Thanks again, Lighty. Thanks, Debbie. This was really fun. I want to thank our incredible podcast team, producer David Seth Cohn and Precision Pictures LTD, and of course, the amazing Renee Green. If you're enjoying Inspiration Loves Company, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate and review us, and tell your family, friends, and colleagues. Oh, and one more thing, be sure to join us next time. Mm -hmm.